1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inderst, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Lars de Wild, the author of The Pop Theology of Video Games, Producing and Playing with Religion, from 2023. The publisher is Amsterdam University Press. Before we jump right in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the audio platform of your choice. Also, feel free to share this episode with your friends or wherever you see fit. And now, back to the show. Young people in the West are more likely to encounter religion in video games than in places of worship like churches, mosques or temples. Lars de Wild interviews developers and players of games such as Assassin's Creed to find out how and why the pop theology of games is so appealing to modern audiences. Based on extensive fieldwork, this book argues that developers of video games and their players engage in a pop theology through which laymen reconsider traditional questions of religion by playing with them. And today, I'm very happy to have Lars on my headphones. Lars, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Rudolf. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Hmm.
1: I want to, Lars. If you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm Lars. I'm a, a white guy on a podcast with another podcast. So <laughs> yes. um, I'm uh, I'm Dutch, as you can hear from my um, my uh, my accent, I guess. Uh, what do people say about themselves? I um, um, yeah. What do people say about themselves, Rudolf?
1: <laughs> yeah, well we have well, we, we will soon find out because the next question is about your your ludo credibility but before we talk about actual games maybe you can talk us a bit through about your three year uh career so far, your academic <laughs> endeavors
0: <laughs> yeah so i studied uh, literature in leiden which is the most beautiful town in the world um which i think everyone probably thinks about their university town um <laughs> after literature, I got into this, uh, into suddenly a kind of cultural, sociological PhD. Um, so I'm weirdly in between kind of the social sciences and the humanities, but I've always been interested in, uh, in video games and kind of how they, how they produce, uh, worldviews and how they work. Um, I, I'm proud to say I'm, I was pretty much raised by video games and, uh, it's, it's where I live. Um, yeah.
1: Hmm. All right. um, now, as mentioned before, we have to check for your Ludo Street credibility. So please <laughs> tell us, what's your favorite game and the one or even the ones you are playing right now?
0: The My canonical answer is, no doubt there, Super Mario World for the Super Nintendo is the, the perfect game. It's the one that just flows the best. It feels the best. It's where all of... I think modern game feel comes from. It's uh, it's just the perfect game. I say that objectively and as an expert. <laughs> but also it's just, you know, at some point you have to settle on an answer. Yeah. It's like your favorite color. No one cares, but you have to have one. Um, even after, you know, the age of 11. But The one I'm playing now is, um, I should be playing Zelda, mm-hmm. but I feel like games have... Especially long, big games become kind of overwhelming for me. So I've I've noticed I'm uh, gravitating more and more towards um, uh, mobile games, just like the really quick kind of um, the ones that get you hooked. I'm I'm in love with dark mechanics, uh, anything that tricks my brain into doing one more round of uh, of the mobile cutesy Doom. If you've seen it, for instance, yeah, brilliant, really good.
1: Well. Yeah, I know what you're talking about the black the black magic of 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 turning us into uh, mindless players, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's like the it's like the TikTok of uh, of games. Um, I right. love that. It really works. Really works Sweet. for me anyway.
1: So, it is assumed that games allow us to play with religious questions and identities in the same way that children play at being a soldier or choose to play house. Now, this requires a radical rethinking of religious questions as no longer just questions of belief or disbelief, but as truths to be tried on, compared and discarded at will. Now, these are all very exciting thoughts, uh, but maybe let's take a step back. Um, Please tell our listeners, how did you come to write the pop theology in the first place?
0: Uh, Yeah, so it comes kind of from the question uh, of why... Uh, There's so much religion in my games, (laughs) right? So, um, I mean, I know I just mentioned uh, uh, Mario and mobile games. So those are poor examples for that. But if you look at some of the best-selling games, um, like Zelda, right? Um, There's just so much kind of like praying going on. And sure, there's magic, but very often it's kind of explained through these kind of like Christian tropes. Um, You know, in Zelda, I think you well, you pray to kind of like Mary-like statues, Um, you might say, oh, those are just goddesses. But if you look at old kind of concept art from the mid-'80s from Nintendo, it's it's concept art of envisioning Link, praying to literally a kind of Catholic statue with a cross in the background and stuff. So... Mm -hmm you know, besides this coming from kind of, you know, a Japanese um, fascination then with this kind of like Western exotic magical thing, it's something that I kept seeing back in my games. And I thought that's odd because most of the people who play them uh, and most of the people who make the games are not religious. So why is that so attractive? Why do why do we want to play with that? Uh, why does it work for, for game developers? So that was basically the well. That was the basic question.
1: Now, your book is divided in two parts. In total, it contains four empirical chapters. Four empirical chapters, that is, which can be read in any order. So, this is something for our listeners who are heavy users of our beloved public transportation system. Um, let's start with part one of your book. Then it builds and contributes to the field of game production studies. I may quote you here, uh, production studies scholars study the way games are made and why they are made that specific way or that way. So maybe this is just my impression, but somehow I think that this subfield has become more present or visible with game research in the last years. Would you agree? And if so, why is that?
0: Yeah, I don't know why people arrive at certain trends, um, but yes, that, I mean there's some people that are doing absolutely brilliant work uh, on this. Um, um, you know, Brendan Kio and uh, Anikaisa Kultama to, to name two. Mm. Um, I don't know why things have why that has gotten more more popular. Um, I know Peter van den Hayden does this as well. I think he he practically slept on uh, paradoxes. Um, doorstep until he could get in for an interview. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't believe in um, in brilliant individuals uh, and, um, you know, geniuses and their, their original ideas. I think there must be something in the air. I'm a Marxist when it comes to invention, so I think there was something leading up to it. Maybe it's the, the Games of Empire book uh, from uh, 12 years ago. But something happened there where, yes, you're right. Like, a lot of people are doing that. Why? I don't know. But either way, I think it's an important question, right? So we, we've we always had access to the games themselves and, you know, what players do with them in various ways. But uh, I think we've kind of slept on the, uh, the question of, um, yeah, of, of why people make them in a certain way and also who makes the games, right? Um, yeah. yeah, I think... to 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 add a little bit to that, I think we have this kind of um, spectral vision of like this ghost of the global media culture industry, Um, this kind of global industry that makes everything. It's distributed, but there are people, there are workers sitting behind, um, you know, those computers uh, kind of making all the parts of your game. And uh, I think it's, yeah, I think people are... Realizing that that's a question that is not only interesting, but you know that we can simply just answer by, by uh, by asking them, how do you make the games and why?
1: Yeah, well, speaking uh, about speaking about um, speaking of sleeping on the doormats of publisher X, Y, and Z. Sorry, Ubisoft is at least at the time of this recording the tenth largest digital game publisher in the world, and. You chose the company behind the high-selling series Assassin's Creed as a starting point for your fieldwork regarding the representation of religion in video games. So please tell our listeners all about your exciting trip to Montreal.
0: (laughs) Montreal, that's a good uh, pronunciation. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Montreal was exciting. Um, I originally had some um, developers that I was interested in. Activision Blizzard uh, for World of Warcraft was one of them. Um, Horizon Zero Dawn had just come out, and Guerrilla was kind of next door. I almost got in there, but uh, Sony kind of blocked me. Uh Um, But then um, Assassin's Creed kept coming up for me. Um, It kept coming up in um, all of the literature reviews I was doing, all of the kind of content analyses I kind of landed on in the end that were productive. But mostly, all the players um, that I was looking at—and I'll, I'll know we'll talk about this later—but they kept talking about Assassin's Creed, so I felt that was that was a good enough reason to go there. Um, I also happened to have some um, some friends in Montreal at uh, Université de Montréal um, at Ludov that uh, I really like, um, just as people, which I think is important. So I went to I went to Montreal for four and a half months with just this idea of emailing and trying to contact everyone that could maybe help me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took me about a month and a half before I spoke to my first um, Ubisoft worker. Um, yeah, I didn't literally sleep on their doorstep, but I but I was around the corner of their studio. Uh, I think it's the biggest um, physical game studio in the world. Um, and it's in the beautiful Myland in Montréal where, you know, you have the best bagels in the world. Sorry to tell you this as a fan of New York, but the Montreal ones are just slightly better. Um, And and Ubisoft, it's basically that, bagels and Ubisoft. Um, (laughs) Not to erase the historical Yiddish community of the Mile End. But yeah, um, it was very exciting. What do I say about that? Oh, yeah. So I ended up being very, very lucky there. Um, it's really the thing I'm, I'm still most proud of in the entire book. I ended up going from a month of silence to reaching uh, via a, a tip from Brendan Keogh, I think, uh, reaching Alexander Hutchinson, who was the creative director on, um, on many games, including Far Cry, but also on uh, Assassin's Creed 3, if I'm not mistaken. Sorry, Alex, if I'm mistaken. Um, And after that, it kind of snowballed into all the creative directors wanting to talk to me. So Mm. I I still can't believe it when I say it because I talked to every creative director who worked on, who led the development of Assassin's Creed um, in in all of the games where uh, Ubisoft Montreal, so not the Quebec or other locations, but where Montreal was the lead studio um, including to Patrice Desilets. Um, it was very exciting. It's like, to me, it's like doing research into Star Wars, but you're talking to George Lucas, Patrice Desilets in this case, and and also every other director of a Star Wars film after. So I'm, I'm really proud of that one.
1: Yeah. Um, I was wondering, before we go a deeper into the next chapters, I'd like to know, um, in regards to your book as well, and thematic uh, contents of your book, whether you are religious yourself or where your interest in religion actually is is coming from then? Mm.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I've, I've been asked that uh, a lot of times. No one ever asks me why I'm interested oh. in games. It's always <laughs> the question of why I'm uh, interested in religion. And I'm not religious. I was raised a Catholic because uh, of where I was born. Um, so there wasn't a lot of... Uh, a lot of choice for me there. um, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm broadly interested in religion just because it's, um, first of all, because it's weird to me, like I said, most people who make or play the games are not religious. Um, you know, most of these games still primarily sell in countries and in demographics that are kind of notoriously secularized. Um, so yeah, that, that was that's just weird. I mean, that prompts a question. Secondly, I think religion is a great kind of easily operas- operationalizable um, worldview to research, right? So before this, I was interested in um, things like militarism, capitalism, nationalism. And because I knew this was going to be a social sciences project, and I was going to ask people about their um, position, and well, their positionality and worldview and so on. I knew it would be easier also to ask them, are you religious? Rather than, are you a capitalist or are you a (laughs) nationalistic? Um, Those are definitely perfectly possible. And I I am looking into doing this in the future. Um, One thing I'm interested in is is kind of looking at uh, cultural values and stereotypes in the game industry between uh, China, mainland China specifically, and um, Western or let's say American um, industries but yeah the the choice of religion was um, yeah was more or less just one example of a of a worldview, and there's no specific attachment uh, for me there
1: mm-hmm. Well, you took aim so to say, at the indie game market as well altogether, you talked to thirty five individual game makers from different religious backgrounds um, and I was wondering of course what what did you learn
0: here um yeah, that was. Um, that was great because there I actually looked at kind of, let's say the, the, um, I selected first of all, for the kind of margin of people who were religious in the game industry. Uh, I say margin because demographically it's just unlikely for, especially a kind of highly educated, um, relatively young, um, perhaps even male dominant, um, demographic which is people who make games um to be religious so i first of all looked for those who were um just to kind of ask like okay do you put that in your games how do you kind of show that um because you know the idea is that indies are kind of more personal autobiographical if only because they are economically independent Mm. uh, and secondly because they're in small teams or single authors right so you would end up with kind of a very individual, um, yeah, personalized games. Uh, and secondly, I also looked at just people that had religious content in their indie games just to ask them kind of, yeah, the question I asked the people at Ubisoft, like, why do you put this in? Um, why do you do that? And what I learned was actually that uh, none of the two groups um, really likes putting religion in there at all unless it's completely conventionalized. So on the one hand, there's this kind of tradition of using priests to heal, for instance, or if you play a game and you see a guy with a shield with a big cross on it, you know, that's a paladin. You don't have to think about that for like a full second even. Uh, It's just a kind of inherited language. But when it comes to putting in like really the personal experience of religion, which you know is a very meaningful tradition, uh, are very mer- meaningful um, personal kind of experience um, for for everyone in their own way um, those religious indies didn't really feel comfortable putting that in um, in the end it was seen as too controversial too private and they just kind of wanted to um, to pay the rent so yeah what I learned was was that that either you put religion in in a kind of very detached very commodified I want to say way that erases personal experience and like you know the kind of like sacred sacredness sacrality um, or you just don't put it in in at all
1: now we have arrived basically at part two of your book and this is where you flip its focus from studying production to studying consumption why was it so important to you to create this kind of comparison um
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a classic encoding, decoding thing, right? Or, um, uh, you know, this idea from Stuart Hall that um, um, the way something is produced instills or encodes uh, a worldview into it. But then um, when actually presented with a media object, like a game or a television show or a, a movie, people from their own, you know, cultural perspective, their intersectional identity and so on, also just, you know, take their own meaning from it, um, not even necessarily consciously. So I wanted to compare those, um, so, you know, how, not only how do, do kind of secular game makers make this kind of Assassin's Creed game, for instance, where, you know, it's about, um, the apple of Eden and like, you know, at the start, at least like Mus- uh, you know, Muslims kind of engaging with Templars and all this super Christian or sorry, super uh, um, kind of holy wars religious setting. Um, yeah, just sure, people make that, but what do players do with that? So what do Muslims do with that game differently perhaps than say Christians or what do secular players um, do with that? As in literally, how do they play it? How do they understand that game differently than say, you know, Hindu or spiritual or, you know, all kinds of players? Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, in the in the very first chapter of, of of the book's second part, you are looking also into the discourse uh, or discourses of five popular gaming forums. And mm-hmm. as someone who has been extensively working with within or with gaming forums as well, I really felt pity. <laughs> But okay that's my story my tragic story what was actually what was your goal behind that specific perspective and which insights did you gain
0: I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to do a kind of digital ethnography of how people um, talk about games together when I'm not watching um, so instead of bothering too much like you do with interviews with like how do i how do I select people how do I enter the field which questions do I ask um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to see, Okay, these forums are popular. Let's look at where they talk about religion and then which games come up. Which kind of, yeah, how do they talk about it? Like, what do they get from certain games? Um, And I made a huge mistake because I I took too much um, data, basically. I had, uh, I think, over 100 threads or maybe I cut it off at 100 at some point. And then it was just some of them just go on for pages and pages. I don't know if you remember, but especially when forums were a bit bigger, kind of pre, pre-Facebook pre almost. Um, yeah, people would just go on and on. And it was, it was very interesting, just to be clear. I learned a lot from just how people talk about um, religion when I'm not looking or mm-hmm. like when they don't see me looking, yeah. uh, unlike focus groups or interviews. But it was just a lot of work. Um, what I learned was that... Um, people from, from from very different backgrounds, say a Christian and an atheist player, um, could play the same game, uh, like Bioshock Infinite, right, which has been written about a lot by academics as like this kind of, you know, uh, as this kind of like, almost parody-like um, critique on the way that conservative American politics has used um, Pentecostal Christianity or something like that. Um, but, When these players talk about it outside of academia, thankfully, they, they have like these, these completely different readings where, you know, Bioshock Infinite can be understood as, you know, a very Christian game that, that kind of, um, um, what do you call that kind of confirms their worldview. Whereas, you know, the other person will play the exact same game. I think it's a great scathing critique of everything bad about Christianity. So I found that fascinating.
1: Yeah. In Chapter Five, you do focus upon individual relationships of players with games and religion. Please take us on a little deep dive in order to get a better understanding of this venture.
0: Yeah, it started with a kind of um, kind of hunger for more after the uh, I mean, I knew I was going to do interviews, but what I didn't know was that I would end up reaching out to people that I'd read the discussions of in the in the chapter before just to kind of reach out to them and go, Hey, could you tell me a little bit more about this post? Because it was so interesting. Uh, I did seek additional participants, but the idea was always to, to get people from different, uh, different religious backgrounds. So again, atheist, agnostic, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, um, spiritualist, and so on. Um, and kind of get them to talk about, um, yeah, how they play, um, and whether they, you know, really seek out religion, whether they care what it did for them, um, um, whether they seek out religion in games, is, is what I mean. Um, and so, you know, without going too much into the analysis, um, there were a lot of people who just like completely didn't play certain games because it didn't agree with their worldview, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't agree with their ethics. There's the famous story of the guy returning Bioshock Infinite because of the baptism scene, right? He didn't want to opt into being baptized. So there's the group like that. But then other people had these, to me, really heartwarming and interesting stories also, of just learning about what it's like in their experience. That's how they explained it. What it's like to be yeah, role-playing as a kind of religious other, is what I called it. Uh, one of my participants said, you know, it, it's... Um, It gives you the experience of what it's like to be in the other person's uh, shoes, something like that. So, yeah, the idea is that some people really kind of, that it fostered in a lot of people uh, an understanding in how other people live their lives and see the world um, to the point that, you know, some of them had kind of converted, uh, had changed religious position, helped by games. So not in the sense that, you know, you can play a game and it, you know, you lose your Christianity or something,
1: yeah.
0: but, it, but it really helped people to understand, for instance, that atheists aren't evil others outside of your Christian community in the case of one of my participants, but you know, can really be, be understood. I don't know what game that was that they played, but um, it's in the book. It's in the book.
1: A <laughs> would <laughs> yeah. yeah, people <laughs> buy this book. It's a really great book.
0: So it's true. Well, don't, don't buy the book. Don't buy the book. It's, it's for free. Like, I, I've, I've bought the book, um, or like a bunch of universities chipped in to make it open access, right? So no one absolutely pays for information. It's Thankfully, it's open access as it should be.
1: Perfect. Good to know. As we are entering the final round now, so this is where I'd like to ask my guests for a little meta reflection. What aspects and ideas would you have loved to include in your book that did not make the cut? And secondly, and I'm really excited to ask that one, where do you see game studies as a research field in general at the moment? What would I like to
0: put in the book? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm happy with the book as it is. Uh, I just want to kind of branch out to other worldviews now, I think. Um, Again, like I said earlier, I I started out um, being interested more into militarism, nationalism, stuff like that. So I'm really excited to just kind of do, again, a kind of producing and consuming, but not of religion, but of um, um, not sure about the title yet, but something about the cultural national values where I want to look at how Americans try to make games for Chinese audiences and vice versa and, and kind of what those audiences do with that very fun anecdote sorry i just want to put it in there you can cut it out if it's boring is that um i interviewed a guy who made um uh who made the the call of duty adaptation for for the chinese market now we're talking huge markets like if your if your game bombs everywhere else but it does well in china it's great it's you know that's a lot of profit um And Call of Duty obviously is a big series in in the West. So that's like the European, European settler, uh, American, Australian and so on market. Um, But they were working on that game with only 20 to 30 people for this huge market. And they had to kind of find out how do Chinese people play games? Um, Do they like our game? Do they like American uh, militarist propaganda shooters? (laughs) Uh, And so... Two things I loved about that is, one, that a lot of the enemies are monsters in the Chinese Call of Duty, like kaiju, like Godzilla kind of creatures. And secondly, they found out that um, a lot of people play Call of Duty in their internet cafes. But what do you do in a Chinese internet cafe? You smoke, right? You smoke cigarettes. So they made um, uh, a game mode that can be played with one hand just so you can smoke and play Call of Duty. Um, and so I'm interested in how that kind of material culture um, changes how games are played and also just how the political economy of getting into a certain market, as well as like the stereotypes people might have about what an imagined Chinese audience is like, how that kind of shapes um, how games play there. So that's what, what I would hope to put in the next book, I guess and and if you ask where where do i see game studies as a research field going in the future um i i just i just love when things get kind of weird so um i'm not a delusion but i hope that people just do delusion stuff just to see what happens yeah i hope that things get weird and critical in game studies um which they have been just to be clear we're past the kind of ontology of finding out what games are about a a decade of for 15 years. Um, and so anything that is, um, is you yeah. know, Sorry, I'm just giving him some attention. So he stops because it's, it's distracting. <laughs> yeah. So obviously some, some good books have been coming out. I can highly recommend uh, Brendan Kyo's new, uh, new book on, um, uh, on the game industry.
1: Yeah, right. We had him uh, on the last show. It was a delicious conversation. Oh, good.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's a, I want to say, a big big example even. Uh, he seems always to be a little bit ahead of everyone else. Um, so that kind of stuff is just great. Obviously, it doesn't help my book, which is partly about the video game industry, to then, you know, have a, a better, slightly newer book, say, the video game industry doesn't exist. But uh, it's a brilliant book. Um, And I I do hope more people kind of gain access to and start to study the way games are made and who makes them in whatever kind of configuration, AAA or otherwise.
1: So we, we have already been a little, given a little glimpse in the future right now, but then there's only one question left. And that's, of course, what will you be playing next?
0: Ah, um, oh God, more of the Zelda, I guess. But although I have to say it feels a bit like a chore um, for the same reason that I didn't like everyone's favorite game, The Witcher 3. Um, Mm -hmm. People are welcome to come fight me. Um, It's probably a neurodivergent thing or whatever, but I was just overwhelmed by... You know, playing 30 hours of a game, walking into the first city and thinking, this is just a massive to-do list. I've already got a job and it's 120 hours and everyone loves it, but I'm not sure I can, you know, do that without feeling like I'm doing it out of obligation. So I'm trying to 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 not have that feeling with Zelda. Um, so that's what I will be playing next, but whether I'll be enjoying it or not is really up to, um, yeah. Yeah whether it feels like a to-do list or not.
1: All right. Well, (laughs) uh, thanks for being on the show today, Lars. I really enjoyed our conversation. And take care and goodbye. And Maybe we'll see see or hear each other again when we're talking about um, your future projects. Thank you. That'd be great.
0: Yeah, thank you for inviting me, Rudolf. And uh, thank you for the pleasant conversation.
1: So, dear listeners, I hope you liked this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of digital games, studies yourself, and want to talk about your latest publication publication or research, please do not hesitate to contact me under rudolfinderst at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me probably under Rudolfinderst almost everywhere. And now, you have a good one.